All right, you can have a seat. Um, the structure of our worship service today is going to be uh, a bit different than what it normally is. Uh, we're going to read a lot of words from John chapter 6, the gospel for us today. There are so many words that our worship team has dev- decided to chop it up into three parts for uh, easier digestion for us. Therefore, because the gospel is going to come in three parts, the sermon is going to come in three parts. Because we're doing this different structure, the offering is going to be at the back doors as you exit today to allow us kind of room and space uh, to meditate on God's word and that logistical part of our service with hearts full of gratitude, hopefully. And if you have kids with you, hopefully you can make it fun, hold hands, exit the door, share your offering on the way out. Is that all clear? All right. They're not going to be three 20-minute sermons. They're going to be a little... Sure. <laughs> and that's the one amen I'm going to get all day. All right on. <laughs> uh, so this summer, as a congregation, we are, uh, as a church, going to the lake. This is not Lake Michigan that I'm talking about. This is not the lakes of northern Minnesota or northern Wisconsin. Uh, we are going to the Great Lake of Israel, also known as the Sea of Galilee, because on the shores of that lake, Jesus decided to make his home base in the city of Capernaum on the northern shores, and so much of his wisdom, his preaching, his healing ministry, his acts of kindness and compassion happened on the shores of this lake. That is where we are hanging out. For those of you who weren't here in worship last week, uh, we started in John chapter 6, when a crowd of 5,000 people found Jesus on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. He fed them, he gave bread and fish for 5,000 plus people, and then he literally walked across the water in the middle of the night back to his home base in Capernaum. The crowds followed him there. Of course, he had just fed them. They followed him there, wondering what was going to happen next. They were hungry. Again, they were curious. In the words that you are going to hear in this worship service, Jesus is now teaching in a synagogue on the Sabbath day in Capernaum. It's a sermon that you're about to hear from Jesus himself. In today's text, a friend and bass player, Tim Lundeen, is going to read the words of Jesus Christ. They're going to appear in red, just like a good old-fashioned gospel in red letters. Whenever words appear in yellow, it means a group is speaking, and if you as a congregation would add your voices at that point, and I will be uh, the narrator, functioning as John the writer. From John chapter 6. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. So they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? A quick pause here. Sometimes in the Gospel of John when it says, The Jews said this about Jesus... It is not meaning it in a prejudicial way in any way, shape, or form. Of course, Jesus was a Jewish man. His 12 disciples were 
Jewish guys. The whole crowd was Jewish. But in some cases, when the Gospel of John says the Jews, it means those who were religiously high-horsed and detractors and complainers about Jesus. He has just fed them. He is now opening God's word to them, and the first thing they can do is say, don't we know his mom and dad? Don't we know where he came from? I mean, it can't be this, can it? The gospel wants to point that out, that if you are encountering the presence of Jesus, complaining about it is not the wisest first move. Here's how the gospel continues. Stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. In the Gospels, the books Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the event that is recorded with the most frequency is Jesus feeding crowds of people. It happens no less than six times in the four Gospels. That means it's reported more often than Jesus' birth, more often than his death, more often than his resurrection even. I mention this because the Gospel writers took great pains to let the people of God and Jesus' disciples know that above all things, Jesus can provide. Jesus can satisfy the hunger and the needs of anybody who comes to him. Have you ever noticed this before? Six times in the Gospels, there's an account of a mass feeding. Jesus meets people's needs. In John chapter 6, he has fed 5,000 people with five little barley loaves and two little salted fish. And now Jesus starts talking about a different kind of bread and a different kind of hunger. He starts talking about a sort of bread that can permanently satisfy. Now this deep, mystical, spiritual talk begins with simple bread, the kind that you put in your mouth. Jesus was not opposed to providing this simple, simple earthly bread or meeting people's basic needs. Ministry in Jesus' name always starts there with the simplest, most basic of human needs. Behind me, there's a triangle, which to psychologists and sociologists is known as Maltzlov's hierarchy of needs. You'll notice at the base of this triangle are physical or physiological needs. The fact that we need to drink water or we can't last for more than a couple days. We need to eat or we can't last more than a few weeks. Jesus knew this, and Jesus honored this about who we are as physical creatures. 
Now, in the United States of America this week, uh, I think we, as a people, uh, achieved some good clarity about this. I think we, as an American people, settled on a good and righteous conclusion uh, based on this hierarchy of needs, and the conclusion is this. It is wrong to separate children from their well-intentioned parents. And a small corollary to this idea has emerged. The younger the children are, the more unjust a forced separation is. After our needs for just basic food and water to stay alive, just above that is human safety, community, family, love, togetherness. The first thing that occurred to us as long as there is a little bit of food in our belly is, who am I connected to? Am I safe? Do I belong? I'm proud of our country for having enough conscience and backbone to cry out about the injustices that were happening in the south of Texas. I'm grateful that our president, who is a leader generally of very firm opinion, not always the first person in line to apologize, that he issued an executive order on Wednesday to end the worst aspect of our border enforcement policy. I'm not trying to make a deep political point. I don't stand before you as someone who has an answer to this super complicated problem of how all the needs, including our national sovereignty and need for clear borders, how all of that comes together. No solutions. But it's good that we are not separating little kids from their parents as a matter of national policy. Uh, Wednesday happened to be World Refugee Day. That was the day that President Trump enacted the executive order that ended this policy. I'm not sure if he was aware of that or not. That is a happy coincidence, I believe. We are an imperfect people, but thank God that standing in front of you this Sunday, uh, our nation, our nation's policies are a little more compassionate. Jesus knew that if anything significant is going to happen in the human race, we need to take care of these basic needs. Basic nutrition. Basic safety. And love, togetherness, family, community. It's only when those things exist that deeper connections and ministry and realization and living into potential can take place. Jesus knew this, and he wasn't afraid to serve on the bottom of the pyramid. He wasn't afraid to serve on the top of the pyramid. He saw all of us complete for what we are. Jesus started with earthly bread, and then, and then he started talking about heavenly bread, which in the Old Testament was manna, which literally rained down on the people of Israel in the desert and, again, met their physical needs. And then... Jesus starts talking about a third kind of bread. He starts talking about himself as heavenly bread. This is the second time in the first six chapters of John's gospel that Jesus has identified himself 
personally as the one who meets the basic needs on the bottom of this pyramid. In John chapter 4, Jesus is having a conversation with a Samaritan woman at the edge of the well. They are drawing water together. Jesus starts speaking to her about living water that satisfies not just a daily thirst, but a lasting, enduring thirst. And then Jesus says to her, if you want this living water, here's how you get it. It's me. I am living water, Jesus says. He equates himself with our most basic need for water. And now here in John chapter 6, Jesus is saying, not only am I water for you, I am also bread for humanity. This is the bottom of the pyramid. Bread and water. And Jesus is saying, I can give it to you physically, but I am in the deepest sense of your needs. I am living water And I am the bread of life. What kind of person says these sort of things? Jesus takes it one step further. He says that not only is he the bread of life, but he says that if you want to be satisfied, you need to eat his flesh And drink his blood. What kind of person would say that? It's no wonder, is it, that folks started to grumble, started to complain. How are they to understand this very clear, concrete, direct, uh, incomprehensible sort of talk? Jesus said to them, Y'all stop grumbling. You are not going to figure this out on your own. If you just try hard, of course, you are going to grumble. There is a lot of offense here. The way to get the bread of heaven in you is not to figure it out with your good rational brains, people. It's not to go to religion class. The way to get this bread into you is by the Father drawing you in. You are not going to crack the code. A life bigger than your own, you need to allow yourself and cooperate with the force that is trying to draw you in to a hungry, discontent world. 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, they were so politically discontent, you all need to eat the bread of heaven in order to be satisfied. I believe to our anxious, lonely world, Now, 2,000 years later, Jesus is saying, you all need to eat the bread of heaven in order to be truly at peace and satisfied. He would say to we modern suburbanites, you all have so much going for you. Your houses, your transportation, your I mean, all of your physical needs are met. You live totally at the top of this triangle from the middle up. But you will never have peace in your soul until the bread of heaven comes into you, until you eat and drink. Jesus is inviting us, all of us. He is inviting us into an awareness, an awareness of our hunger, our desperate hunger. Now, we probably all ate breakfast. We all probably had access to a decent cup of coffee this morning. Orange juice. I mean, we are not hungry people. 
Jesus is saying these words so that we can get into, in touch with the deep, deep hunger that if we are honest with ourselves, we all experience. If we are truthful, we recognize that we are personally unable, personally incapable, personally incompetent to self-satisfy our own deepest needs. Isn't that a humbling thought? I mean, we're Americans. We get stuff done. But when it comes for our deepest needs, I am saying, Jesus is saying, you can't get that done for yourself. It's not going to happen. In order to experience the gospel, we need an awareness that we are hungry. How do we stay? How do we live in that kind of awareness when our whole lives are organized around getting stuff done, checking boxes off, getting whatever we need? I mean, our whole life argues against this fundamental spiritual point that Jesus is making. Uh, in a book that I was reading this week called How Dante Can Save Your Life, there's a man who's struggling exactly with this issue. He lives in Louisiana, very near Angolan prison. He goes to an Orthodox church, and his father, his priest, because he's struggling to come in contact with his deep needs, assigns him this spiritual homework. 500 times a day, pray this. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. I mean, 500 times is a lot. So if you sat quietly and meditatively in the course of an hour, if that was the only sentence you let turn over in your spirit, you could maybe do that 500 times in an hour. And he says, this is about how long it takes me. This is my spiritual homework. He asked his priest, how long am I going to have to do this for? His priest's answer was, Ah, for the rest of your life. (laughs) Not in terms of being a life sentence, but being the opposite of a life sentence, of being something that cracks open the bars of his own personal freedom and sets him free because he's needing Jesus and not needing to be clever, not needing to write something, not needing to fix something, but just to sit there. I am not giving you all this homework, although if anybody wants to take up the challenge, feel free. I'd love to talk to you. I have tried this at various points in my life myself. Here's what will happen. You sit for about 45 seconds. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of David. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, I should really go to the jewel. I should just... Like, whatever needs to be sorted out, two repetitions in, it just comes screaming to the... It is so humbling. (laughs) And shows us, that exercise shows me how desperately I need Jesus and how easily distracted I am. Mercy. As a little exercise, we are going to sit here for 60 seconds in silence. Okay? If If you can empty your mind other than just... God, I need you. Jesus, you're the bread of heaven. If you want to repeat, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. Uh, This minute, 
with maybe 600 people in this room, it's a way of praying together to say, you know what? We do not have our act together. We are sitting here silent and helpless, needing the bread of heaven. Will you join me in this moment?
join me in prayer. Oh, our good God, thank you that we can come before you this morning, that we can bring you our praise and our heartbreak, that we can tell you all that thrills us and all that terrifies us and every last thing in between. This morning, Jesus, as we focus on you, the bread of life, we thank you especially for the ways that you provide, for the ways that you nourish, the ways that you feed and warm our spirits, for the ways that you go above and beyond to meet our needs and answer the cries of our hearts. We thank you for being a God who does not do the bare minimum, but does immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. Of course, God, we know that not everyone here can easily believe those words. Some of us are wondering when and where and how we'll experience this holy and abundant provision that we long and we ask for. So God, as we wait for you to provide, we ask that you open our eyes. Let us see the stacks and the piles of your love and your goodness everywhere around us. Let us feel the ridiculous, embarrassing abundance of your riches, the riches of your love, of peace, of mercy, of grace, of the strength to simply make it through another day. May those of us who are suffering be overwhelmed with your healing. May those of us who are grieving be overwhelmed with your comfort. May those of us who are doubting be overwhelmed with your presence. May those of us who feel outcast be overwhelmed with your acceptance. May those of us who feel beyond mercy be overwhelmed with your grace. And may those of us who stand in whatever need be overwhelmed with the abundance of your provision. God, you are so good. We ask that you open our senses to notice you all around us, to feel, hear, taste, see, smell, and know that you are with us. Remind us that you, the God of the universe, the maker and keeper and lover of all things, are here with us and for us. Remind us that you withhold no good thing and that, in fact, you gave everything so that every last one of us could be welcomed fully into your mighty and holy presence. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Church, we're going to continue in John chapter 6. The next two sections are going to be a little briefer and more direct. Hear the word of the Lord. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And then the Jews, again the detractors, began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said all this while teaching 
in the synagogue in Capernaum. This story started with 5,000 people being hungry. Jesus gave them earthly bread. Then he spoke about the heavenly bread, the manna. Then he said that he himself was the real bread from heaven. And now he is saying that one must eat this bread from heaven by eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Do you hear how clear Jesus was about this? He repeats it three times. You need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. This was so offensive. I mean, if you think about it, sitting here 2,000 years later, even if you celebrated communion a bunch of times, even if you've heard these words before and grown up in the church hearing these words, I mean, if you really hear them, you're like, oh, what? American writer Flannery O'Connor said this about her stories, which had many exaggerated images. She said, in the land of the blind, you have to draw really big caricatures. Do you get her point? She's a writer. She's saying, in the land of spiritually blind people, Americans, you need to really go out of your way to exaggerate and draw giant caricatures. That is what Jesus is doing here. He is saying something so big, so broad, so potentially offensive. He is trying to get beneath the defenses, the armor. Will anybody be able to see what Jesus is actually putting forward, though? Will anybody actually have ears to hear what he's really saying? If you followed along in your Bibles, in verse 54, there's a change in Jesus' speech. Now, in English, we have this verb for eat, right? Our general verb for putting anything in your mouth and getting some uh, calories out of the deal. There's also a verb like that in Greek. In verse 54, Jesus shifts gears, and he no longer is just using the regular verb to eat, but chooses a Greek word which means, I don't want to be rude, but it means like to chomp down or to chew with your mouth open or to, to feed on, like in a feeding frenzy kind of way. It is a, ah, like an exaggerated, put it in your mouth kind of thing. No English translation properly translates this verb because Jesus is already offensive enough without saying, you need to chow down on my living flesh. You hear what I'm saying? This is actually what Jesus says. Jesus is offering himself a slice of eternal life. Again, what kind of person says this? What kind of person? Either Jesus is mad, like he's just lost it, or he's twisted and somehow perverse or malicious. Those are the two leading possibilities. Or the third possibility is this guy is actually the son of God, the bread come down from heaven. And even though this seems intolerable to our good rational minds, we need to pay attention to this man. I'm going with option three. By the way, I hope you're still with me. Jesus doesn't want to entertain us. 
Jesus is not trying to distract us with this big image. Jesus is saying, I want to get inside of you. I want to be inside of you. I want to be part of you. I want to be part of the whole person because my business is about making people whole. Simply put, all of us are alive sitting here today because we live off the lives of others. The babies in the nursery, they're living off formula and mother's milk. The rest of us, as we get bigger, we live off the life of plants. We live off the flesh of animals. And Jesus is saying, it is the same spiritually. It is the sacrifice of my body and blood, my coming death and resurrection that is going to feed you and energize you. This is a matter of life and death, people. Are you willing to eat and not just eat in a polite napkin, uh, silverware all in the right place around your uh, table setting sort of way? Earthly bread is not going to do it. Even if manna started raining down from heaven again from the hand of God, that would not do it. Everybody who ate that in the Old Testament died. They didn't live any longer as a result of God's gift of free bread. But if you are willing to feed on the bread of heaven, you can really live. The English poet W.H. Auden uh, summed up this passage beautifully with these words. The slogan of hell is eat or be eaten. And that's how the world works, is it not? I mean, that's Darwin. Eat or be eaten. Be the powerful one, or somebody more powerful than you is going to take you out. The slogan of heaven is eat and be eaten. <laughs> Some of you are still looking at me cross-eyed like, what? What does that? This is almost as hard to understand as Jesus. If you live your life on the competitive principle, trying to dominate, get a leg up, prove yourself superior, satisfy your own needs, that is the trajectory that ends up in hell ultimately apart from God. Because it's about the self. But if you let yourself partake of the life of Christ, and then as that life comes alive in you, if you give of yourself for the needs of the world, that's when you truly start to live. At the top of Maslow's pyramid, the top rung of that pyramid is self-realization or self-actualization. As an old man, Maslow realized he needed one more category. It never makes it in the psychology or the sociology books. Maslow added, as a wise older person, it's not self-actualization. It's actually self-actualization for the sake of others. Can you feel the difference of it? Like, if you're under 50 years old, like, don't worry about this. <laughs> It's becoming your true, mature self, not to just be a sturdy self. It's becoming yourself 
so that you can follow Jesus' example and give your life into the world. That is truly living. Take, eat, remember, and believe are the words we say here. Take, drink, remember, and believe are the words we say here. And then when we leave this house of worship, we go into the world and we become the living water. We become the bread, the body of Christ for the sake of the world. Being just yourself is a fine thing. But Jesus is teaching being who you were created to be for the sake of something bigger, that's where the spiritual life is. We stand, we're going to sing together about the life that Jesus gives us.
have a seat. We are coming to the finish line of John chapter 6. There are a couple verses left. Like, what? We're not done yet? No, there are a couple verses left. Uh, By the way, if at your family devotions or with your people, if you ever want to read the entirety of John chapter 6, that would be a fine exercise. Here is how the scene concludes. On hearing all these words, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? right? This is a hard teaching. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And then Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to leave too, do you? And then Simon Peter, good old Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. The disciples 2,000 years ago said, this whole flesh and blood, drinking and eating business, Jesus, this is hard. It's offensive. Yes, yes, yes. Jesus' words in John chapter 6 sift his followers. They thin out the herd of his disciples. These are deep things, and only with Holy Spirit imagination can you see it or comprehend it or embrace it. I am struck by the tenderness of Jesus here. He is so open. He is so vulnerable. He is even a little bit sad, I imagine, in his tone of voice about being rejected by so many. Do you want to leave me too? Is his question to us. Is this so offensive that you can't handle it anymore? I love Peter's response. He often is getting it wrong. He gets it 100% square right here. Where else are we going to go, Jesus? You have the words, you have the teaching, you have the path. You have the miracles. You have the compassion. You have the, you have the daily bread we need to survive. You are the Holy One of God. Peter had seen it with his own eyes. He saw Jesus multiply food. He saw Jesus walk on water. Where else are we going to find that? Many were offended. Many concluded, you know what? If I want something interesting to happen in my life, 
I don't need this. I could find better ways to be entertained and occupied. Folks concluded, I thought after he fed those 5,000 people, something dramatic was going to change in our country. Maybe this was the guy to grab the reins of power. I don't think with this flesh and blood business, it's going that way. That kind of thinking is pursuing the sort of bread that only lasts and satisfies hunger until you get another meal. The kind of bread that Jesus makes lasts forever. Where else are we going to find somebody who makes food like that? This whole passage at the end, I believe, boils down to this question. For any prospective disciple, you and I included, do you want to be fed by God? Do you want to be fed by God, even if it proves offensive? Even if it proves complicated? This phrase, fed by God, it's a simple equivalent in my mind, in my spirit, for following Jesus. Do you really want to be fed by following Jesus? Do you want your life to be united to his life? That is the singular meal. That is the bread that lasts for eternity when you take him in and your life is joined with his life. There is nothing on this planet that will satisfy you your deepest hungers, like that joining. And on a day-to-day level, there is nothing that satisfies your spirit more than a daily meal on the Word of God. A daily feast in the presence of Jesus. Now this question that I pose to you, it's a question about desire. What do you want What do you really want at the end of the day? Not what are you amused by, what's going to do it for you for a couple hours. What do you really want? Jesus did not hesitate to ask this question numerous times through the gospel. What can I do for you? What do you really want? For today, if there is something that in response to this question is rising up and says, I recognize in my spirit, deep, eternal, profound desire, then what Jesus says in John chapter 6 will have done the right thing in your life. If it stirs that desire, if it raises it to the surface. If you're the kind of forward-looking person who's already thinking, yeah, I have that desire, but, like, could you help me out a little bit, preacher man? Like, how do I lean into that desire? Are there tools? How is this going to work? That is what this fall at Elmhurst Christian Reformed Church is going to be all about. If you want to do homework in advance, do this. Read John chapter 6, and then keep reading, and notice 
how Jesus, as the Messiah, lived among us. Notice the questions that he asked. Notice what came out of his mouth. Notice his compassion. Notice the way he really saw and heard others. Not just what they were saying, but what was between the lines. Notice what Jesus prayed for. And let this kindle the desire that may be already stirring here this morning. Let that fan it into a bigger flame. And Lord willing, this fall, we are going to work up a giant inferno with these desires to put our feet on the path of Jesus and to let him be, in increasing ways, the bread of heaven for us and for the life of the world. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that inside all of us, you have put such a deep desire that nothing that is not you can satisfy it. And we thank you, God, that for every desire you have put into us, even this deep, profound one, that there is satisfaction. And in this case, it is you yourself, God. We look to you. In your presence, we are not afraid to name or honor that desire. We need more than what can come out of us. We need the bread of heaven. God, be faithful and provide your presence for us in Jesus' name. Amen.